0: We serve a great God, don't we? And you got to sing celebrations and praises. I hope you meant what you were saying uh, because we do serve a great God. And you know this God that we serve, he thinks you're pretty great. As a matter of fact, he says you're really great. He uses those very words, and I'm going to show you that this morning as we get into another parable. Um, you want to pull out your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 11 if you would. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Ma- Matthew chapter 11, and we'll be there in just a minute. Uh, before we do that, you're going to see a couple of slides go up on the screen that are related to church finances. This is a reason to celebrate, so hope you have your amens on this morning. Let me have you um, take a look at this very first slide. That's the total cash that's been received in our three-year campaign for building this building. How fantastic is that? right? It's really great. So that means we're really, really, really getting close to paying for the facility. So um, if you can remember back to when we launched this, if you were here, three years ago, three years ago this month, it was the weekend after Thanksgiving in 2016 when we said we're getting ready to build a building. And we shared the vision with everybody that was present And we said, this is what we think it's gonna cost. And God has worked through each of you to be able to eliminate the cost of building this building. So there's $176,000 outstanding in pledges still. And there is this number, $159,948. That means within $159,948, this building will be completely paid for. That's pretty fantastic. When we got into this, we didn't really know how God was going to provide. We just knew that he would. We took the step of faith, believing that he would work through you, and he did. And we have just that little bit of a percentage left to go. And here we are still in the third year of the three-year campaign. So I believe that God can wipe that out between now and Christmas. And I'm looking forward to sharing news with you, maybe in January, February, that he did that. I'm just going to believe God for that. I want to pray with you about that detail, um, but also thank God for some other things that he's been doing. It was probably a month and a half or two months ago we shared with you that uh, the ministry that Bruce and Lynn Block lead was going to be taking books into area public school systems and sharing them with the children. Some of you bought those books. Well, we have a photograph for you of Bruce reading to a classroom of kids. He took the books, he delivered the books, and he read the books, and he did exactly what they promised, and we just wanted to share that with you, that there's your follow-up for the books that you bought, so thank you for participating in that way. Now, if you would, yeah, go ahead, that's great. They did a great job. Uh, If you would uh, jump over to Matthew chapter 11, maybe you don't own a Bible, you might be new to church. We have free Bibles in the back of the auditorium in the atrium this morning. You can pick one up on your way out this morning. You might be following along online or maybe you've, you've got an electronic version of the Bible with you. Feel free to do it that way. Maybe you've got a hard copy. If that's the case, you're going to want your notes out this morning so you can reach into the bulletin, pull those out so you can follow along. I speak specifically to believers here this morning right now, persons who already have put their faith in Jesus. If you're at that place where you're a believer this morning and you know that you know that you know that Jesus is your Savior and you follow him, you have really great reason to celebrate and praise, not just when we get out the songs and Michael leads us through praise worship, but throughout the course of your life, 24-7, you have great reason Because last week we discovered there are very few people who find what Jesus calls the narrow gate. There are very few people who walk the narrow path and go through the narrow gate and find their way to salvation. Today what you're going to see is in the scope of human history. Since the time of Adam to the time of 2019, you are perhaps more remarkable than you even realize. More remarkable than even Noah, Daniel, Esther, Ruth, David, even King Solomon, or even greater than John, the one known as John the Baptizer. And those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' declarations about you. So I want to help you to see that this morning. I want to pray with you first, and then we can expand on the details. Would you join me in that? Lord God, I know that I stand before hundreds of individuals who have recognized they can come to you just as they are. That that song renders my heart nearly every time I sing it, Father, and I, I thank you for the reality that it's expressed there. Many of us here have discovered that reality. We come to you as the Lamb of God, and we recognize you take away our sin. So, we have reason to praise you, but you've in turn called us great when we recognize that. And so, we want to understand what that means. Because the reality is, Father, it causes some of us to cringe when we hear that you consider us great. You've promised that your Holy Spirit would teach us, so we ask for that right now. Teach us and guide us. Work through these words. We ask for this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. He's not turning out to be what they anticipated. hasn't met the expectations. Individuals are confused. Conflicts with leaders are increasing day by day. Cities that were the location of many of his greatest miracles, they've hardened themselves against the very things that they saw with their own eyes. And the crowd as a whole, they're misunderstanding even the most basic elements of Jesus' teachings. And now, now it seems that Even John, even John the Baptist is beginning to doubt Jesus. Has the kingdom not come after all? Let me expand on that. When we pick up Matthew chapter 11, we enter into a source that tells us that John's in prison. He's being held in the fortress of Macarius, it's an ancient fortress that was built by the Herods, and they're holding him in a dungeon. He's been there nearly two years. He denounced a marriage. King Herod decided to marry his brother's wife. It was an adulterous marriage, and John the Baptist spoke against it, and so the king puts him in the dungeon. The leaders of Israel, as a nation, they should have opposed what the king did, but they remained completely silent. At the very least, they should have tried to free John, but they take no action whatsoever. Mostly because their attitude towards John is the same as their attitude towards Jesus. After all, John called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So obviously, he's on Jesus' side, and he said some pretty hard things about the leaders of Israel. Look with me on the screen at this one, Matthew 3, 7. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So Jesus isn't the only one who called people snakes. John did it as well. So now John sits in prison. And he hears things about Jesus. People are bringing reports to him. So we find a man of the wilderness confined indoors. The powerful voice of the one who cries in the wilderness has now got dungeon walls for his only audience. And he begins having questions within his heart. Apparently his days are numbered. So he sends a very specific question to Jesus, and he sends it through his disciples. You'll see this on the screen, Matthew 11, verse 2. John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? It's very subtle, but Matthew writes that John hears of the works of Christ, See, Matthew writes the book of Matthew post resurrection, after Jesus has been crucified, after the resurrection. But John, he lives before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, and he's got questions. And he's got questions about if Jesus is the one. But Matthew writes, he hears about the works of Christ. See, in Matthew's mind, there's no questions whatsoever, it's very subtle. He hears about the works of the Christ, the Mashiach. But nonetheless, John has questions Who is this one? Uh, on one level, it's pretty surprising that he would ask that. It comes from the very one whose sole purpose on earth was to announce that Jesus was the one. Let me just put these four bullet points for you up on the screen. These are things that are true of John that we're told from the Bible. We're told that he's filled from the from the womb with the Spirit of God. We're told that he's been set apart by God to announce the Messiah. It's his job. He saw personally the Holy Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting upon Jesus at his baptism. And then if that wasn't enough, he heard the voice of God. Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That John would hear those things and ask this question, how do we understand that? Well, while being the forerunner of the Messiah, John had been announcing judgment Yet any judgment was slow in coming because he wasn't seeing it. The one he pointed to, he said, would come in judgment. But he's actually been bringing healing. There's been no judgment whatsoever. Not even to the Herods who threw him in prison. John's not hearing of any retribution whatsoever. So while he sits in prison, he receives reports that Jesus is taking action, but his action is all healings. And he can't see the total picture. I'm going to remind you this morning of the big picture and why Jesus calls you great. There's a big picture that John's not seeing. See, he has knowledge of the miracles, but something isn't fitting for him. He personally said that Jesus would bring a threshing with a winnowing fork and that he would separate the wheat from the chaff. And he said this, Matthew 3, 12, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, to this point, there's been no fire. There's been no acts of judgment. When is Jesus going to bring the heat? So Jesus sends back a message to John. Same messengers, he just says, I want you to go back to John and take him this information. Look with me on the screen at Matthew eleven four. 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the dead hear, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. While it might look like Jesus is speaking in code and in some ways he kind of is here, the reply is actually really kind and it's really loving and there's no rebuke whatsoever here for any doubt that he has. It only is revealing the tenderness that Jesus has towards John because John's about to be beheaded and John doesn't know that. He's been held in prison and King Herod is getting ready to take his head off. So Jesus only has to remind John of what the Bible says about the Messiah. So he goes to the Old Testament and he begins quoting Isaiah to John. The lame are walking John, the blind can see John, the deaf can hear John. He only has to quiet his soul by reminding him of God's word. You ever sat in a hospital room with someone who's on their deathbed and read God's word to them? See, Jesus sets the pattern for that. God's word will quiet your soul. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. God's quoting God. And he begins citing Isaiah. And all those prophecies, they point forward in time, announcing that the Messiah will be identified by certain characteristics. That the Messiah is going to bring good news to the poor. So, John, pay attention. The lame are walking, John. The the deaf can hear birds sing and children laugh. The blind are seeing sunsets, John, and dead people are being raised. So if John's looking for more evidence that Jesus is the one, Jesus is asking him, John, will you be content with the evidence I've given you? It's enough, John. There's enough evidence here. But what John knew is that Isaiah went a step further. Jesus just quoted Isaiah. Isaiah had gone a step further, and he said, not only will the lame walk and the deaf hear, but there will be judgment. The Messiah is going to bring judgment. And John didn't know that there would be two comings. And Isaiah didn't know that there would be two comings of the Messiah. They thought there would only be one. So in his first coming, Jesus brings healing. He brings an invitation to people to come to him just as you are, to come to the Lamb of God. But in the second coming, he brings judgment. And the Old Testament writers didn't understand that. Many of the New Testament writers were confused a little bit about that and then it became clear to them as time went on. And John the baptizer certainly didn't understand that. So Jesus says, John, just be content with the plan as it is. There's a bigger picture here, John, and while he waits, it costs his life. Now apparently, and I'm speculating here on this point, there's apparently growing skepticism among the crowd that John is actually validated, because Jesus begins to speaking about John's characteristics and his qualities. Apparently, they're questioning his validity. Go with me to Jesus' next statement in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Check this, church. This is where you come in. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Think of all the deathbed conversations that have taken place that have resulted in deathbed salvations. Maybe you even need to just think of the thief on the cross when Jesus said, I tell you the truth based on your confession, this day you will be with me in paradise. Deathbed confession from a thief on the cross. Jesus says even that one is greater than John. How do we understand that? How can he make that statement? Jesus describes John as the greatest human being to have ever walked the planet to that point in time, and mind you, in that mix is Noah and Daniel and David and King Solomon and Esther and Ruth, anybody that you can think of. He says, among those born of women, as far as humans are concerned, there's no one greater than John. He is unequaled. How is that true? Well, he's unequaled because of his spiritual walk and specifically because of his privilege as the role, as the forerunner of the king of kings. And in time, he arrived at the very threshold of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, right at the consummation of the ages. And yet, as perfect as his walk was and his timing was, If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, as your resurrected Savior, John's behind you in line. Like, how great are you? Does that make you cringe a little bit? Because immediately you want to say, well, our God is great, but God's saying, you're great. How do I understand that? Because sometimes I don't feel so great, right? Maybe you feel better after singing Just As I Am, or you come to church and you walk out the door with a little bigger skip in your step. But maybe not Monday, maybe not Tuesday, but God says you're great, greater than John. The one who is least is greater than him. And contrast in your mind all those who lived prior to Jesus to those who seize on the magnitude of what the crucifixion and the resurrection is. That's what makes you greater. Now understand, Jesus is not demeaning John in any way whatsoever. What he's doing is he's reinforcing the reality of how great of what is given to you is given to you. Even the least surpasses those of the greatest of the old era. Noah didn't live to see the true ark. He didn't live to see the one who would deliver us from the eternal storm of destruction. Moses didn't live to see the deliverer, you did. How great is your privilege that you get to be in this place in time? Scripture speaks about this reality. Hebrews eleven thirteen. it says, all these, after it's talking about all those from the Old Testament, it says, all these died in the faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So John the Baptist doesn't get to live to see the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. And this greatness and this leastness is referring to the benefits of being in the present kingdom. I'm not talking about what's waiting for you in heaven. I'm sure John's got great rewards in heaven. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the here and now. I'm talking about tomorrow morning when you wake up. I'm talking about today right in this moment. I'm going to give you five things that are in your notes under number six. What are the five benefits that you have completely because of what Jesus did for you? First of all, and get your amens ready for this. Just a little coaching in advance, right? You have number one, first and foremost, complete and total forgiveness of your sins. Oh, come on. Say it like you believe it. Amen. All right? I mean, that's pretty huge, wouldn't you say? Complete, total, one-time Why do I say one time? Meaning once for all. Once Jesus died for your sins, he died for all your sins. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible says. The Bible clarifies that. Once for all, he died for your sins. Once for all, for all time. Number two, you have immediate access to God. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. You don't have to go through a priest. You go right to God. You talk to the Father himself. Number three, you've got the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of the living God in you. People didn't have that in the Old Testament. Number four, God's guarantee is that as a result of that Holy Spirit being within you because you profess Jesus Christ, you are sealed for eternity. Nothing can take that from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And number five, you got peace of mind because you don't even have to think about making a sacrifice today. You don't even have to think about tomorrow getting up and finding a lamb that will make a sacrifice for you because the lamb already did it for you, Right? It's all done. Those are the things that you have. You have those benefits because of Jesus. Now Jesus enters into some pretty hard things, and I do mean intellectually hard when he goes to verse 12. If you think this first part was difficult, follow this next part. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. I'll say just right up front, there's two ways to understand that statement. And people have debated for a long time over what was he exactly saying. But here's how I understand it. From the days of John, which was a relatively brief period of time, from the time that John began announcing the kingdom of heaven, was maybe 18 months. From the time of John until now, maybe 18 months. And during that time, John generated a lot of conflict Because the message that he was delivering, that there was a judgment coming, it really upset the status quo. And he ticked off the leaders of the nation. And especially the king of Israel. And his actions provoked reaction. And there was violence. And it resulted in him being arrested and chained and being put in a dungeon. And ultimately he's going to be executed so in context with what Jesus is saying here, he's saying the advancing kingdom, it's, it's going to forcibly be opposed by hostile people. They're going to do it. And so we see violent opposition with the imprisonment of John. Soon you'll see the execution of Jesus up to this very day in 2019. Satan still stands in opposition against the advancing kingdom. And it's going to continue until the second coming of Jesus. Jesus. So in John's case, the Pharisees and the scribes, they attacked him verbally. Herod attacked him physically and then beheaded him. And soon they're going to violently murder Jesus. So in truth, the kingdom is being rejected. And because it's being rejected in the spiritual dimension, the final kingdom, the earthly kingdom, what we call the millennial kingdom, can't be established because it's being violently rejected. And as the kingdom advances, opposition will increase. Now, mark this where the kingdom is not advancing, there's no opposition. The adversary doesn't care about that. What the adversary cares about is people coming to Christ, people making decisions, people living for Christ, and that's who he comes against. To be a Christian is to swim against the flow, the flow of the world system. And the adversary absolutely is extremely powerful. Satan hates that you claim Jesus. And so he's going to bring it against you. He's going to bring the hate. Those who enter the kingdom of God through grace do so in the face of enormous opposition. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit within you, you can overcome. Amen? That's what scripture says, you're an overcomer. Hooper nakao, super overcomer in the Greek language. That's not because of you. It's because of who's in you, because of what the Holy Spirit does in you. Watch where Jesus goes next, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Wow, we gotta be really careful with that. Because Jesus says, if you're willing to accept this, I know many people are not going to accept this. If you're willing to accept this, John himself is the Elijah who is to come. And Jesus says, if you're willing, in other words, he's recognizing what he's about to say is something that's very difficult to process. So we got to be careful with our hearing. I want to walk you very carefully through that statement. The prophets and the law, what's that referring to? That's referring to the Old Testament. It's another way of saying the Old Testament portion of the Bible, the prophets and the law, they prophesied. And with John's appearance on the stage of history, the period of the Old Testament came to an end. The end of one era is the beginning of another era and John was the end of that era. And the Old Testament prophesied up until John. What is prophecy? Prophecy is looking forward in time to reveal the mind of God. To reveal the mind of God about what? Jesus has just said, from Genesis to the book of Malachi, they all pointed forward in time and they're prophesying to me. They're prophesying to the Messiah. They prophesied until the time of John. And John's job was to pick up that ball and run with it. He's the forerunner. He's going to be preparing the nation of Israel and all of the planet, all of the kingdom for the arrival of Jesus. So in what sense is he, Elijah, who was to come? the very last words of the very last book of the very last chapter of the old testament is malachi look with me on the screen at malachi 4:5 behold i'm going to send you elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the lord boom the end the end of the old testament And with that, there's 400 years of silence. And then on the scene comes John the Baptist. What in the world can I understand about him coming as Elijah? How does that fit? And what is this great and terrible day of the Lord? That's the time of tribulation when the Antichrist appears on this planet. That seven-year span of time when the Antichrist virtually wipes out everything that we know in this present day and age how is Jesus referring to John as Elijah then well he came in the nature of Elijah he was fiery in his appearance he was definitely dressed like Elijah and he wore some pretty weird clothing I'll get into that in just a minute and he certainly he brought judgment he had this message of judgment that he pounded over and over again but there were no judgments there were no judgments on Israel, there were no judgments on the world, on the nation. They didn't come during John's life, they didn't come immediately following the time of John. So John was like Elijah internally in spirit and in power. And externally he was rugged in his appearance and he was an individualist and a nonconformist. So when the angels show up and they tell his mother and father that he's gonna be arriving, they even say he's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Look at this, look 117. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, him meaning Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So John the Baptist is not a reincarnated Elijah. He's not Elijah physically, literally returned. Here's Jesus' point. If the generation of the planet living at that time, if the Jews specifically had received John's message, he, John, would have been coming in fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi if they had received Jesus as Messiah, but they refuse. And so there's gonna be another Elijah-like prophet that's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord who's gonna be coming before the tribulation. And because Israel did not accept the message, the kingdom couldn't be established. And so Jesus says, verse 15, He who has ears to hear, is that you, church? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, take this seriously. This is a warning. Jesus says, heads up. God's truth always demands a response. Now think back with me to John's original question. He's really being honest. And he's trying to understand legitimately Honest questions come to people, even like John the Baptist has hard questions, but notice that he looks to Jesus for the answer. He doesn't look to anybody else. Jesus, will you answer this for me? And so Jesus points John to the Word of God. He points him to God's Word for validation. And he's saying to John, John, look at the evidence. I am the Messiah. I am the one. I came bringing the kingdom. I'm here to offer it to everyone. If you have ears to hear, process this, understand this, believe this. And so now he breaks into another very fast parable, just like last week, which is what we end with. And the parable is meant to contrast those who believe to those who don't believe. Watch the parable. It starts with verse 16, part A. But to what shall I compare this generation? We said, comparison is the heart of parables, laying down a physical reality next to a spiritual reality. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Verse 16, part B. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now remember, Jesus' miracles have already established his credentials beyond question. Anybody can look at what he's doing and saying, absolutely, that's an exact match. But many, even after witnessing the miracles with their own eyes, they refuse him. How do you explain that? Well, I've come to the realization in my life that unbelief is actually stronger than facts. Do you hear that? Unbelief is actually stronger than facts. Have you ever heard anybody say, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts? Right? I've heard individuals say that. Dr. William Barclay said it this way The plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening. So Jesus says in verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? That's a common ancient expression when he's getting ready to deliver a parable. Now, some who refused to believe covered their unbelief with criticism. Others covered their unbelief with childlike tantrums because it was news they didn't want to hear. You ever seen a child go, la, 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 don't tell me that. Okay, that's what he's saying. You got going on here. You got people throwing tantrums. So Jesus' parable compares these foolish children who are at the market, who are objecting to other children who are at the market that have invited them to play. What's the market? Well, that's the agora. The the Agora in the Greek language is a place, a central part of the city, center city. This is where individuals would show up who were specialists in carpentry, specialists in brickwork or in growing crops. Perhaps they harvested honey and they would bring honey to the marketplace. On Thursdays, typically, is when people did their marketing in the ancient world. They would come to resolve what they needed for their household before the celebration of Shabbat on Saturday. So Thursdays, they would go to the market. They would buy the things that they need. People would set up their tents, their booths, their carts, and pull it into the center of the marketplace. And as the parents did that, they naturally had their children with them. And so the children are in the center of the marketplace, and they're playing games. And two games were really popular at this time, the wedding game and the funeral game. I know, you got PlayStation, right? Okay. They didn't have that. And children want to mimic adults, and children want to do what adults do, and so they don't have PlayStation. The best they can do is come up with the wedding game and the funeral game. And just as today, when children mimic adults by performing mock weddings or mock funerals, that's what Jesus is talking about. And so when children played the mock weddings... Some of the children would imitate with pretend flutes. We played the song for you, but you didn't dance. And other children would want to play the funeral game. We played the dirge for you, and you, you didn't cry. You're like children in the marketplace. What do we know about children? Well, just like today, there's always a few holdouts. Some who are just plain obstinate. If the game is wedding, they want to play funeral. If the game is funeral, they want to play wedding. Nothing that the others do satisfy them. They're irritable, crabby, and spoiled. Do you know any children like that? Don't name them. I'm just asking. All right? You know people like that. They want their own way. So Jesus ends it this way. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Neither eating nor drinking. Uh, Jesus is using a figurative image here. John's life has been harsh. He's the desert nomad. He's the guy living with camel hair clothing. He's been out in the wilderness a really severe life. He ate locusts and wild honey. Lives in the desert day and night. Dresses in camel hair clothing. Now, I'm thinking I could probably do the honey. I might be able to do the camel hair t-shirt. I'm not sure. I definitely couldn't eat the locusts. Their little legs get stuck in your teeth. You know, you got problems there. No floss. How does he do that? He's dedicated to living in the wilderness, and his message was so extremely intense. He wasn't at the Jordan River to socialize, and some people became so resentful of him because he kept pounding the same issue over and over and over of a coming judgment that they charge him with demon possession. John, that guy's gone crazy in his mind. He's demon-possessed. Jesus says John's message and his life was in funeral mode. Uh, Contrast that to Jesus. Very interestingly, in contrast to John's desert nomad life, is Jesus who joins in all the normal activities. He's going to weddings. He goes to funerals. He interrupts a lot of funerals by raising people from the dead. Puts funeral workers out of work, right? and he goes to parties. So you've got this huge contrast between the two. So just as John lived in funeral mode, Jesus lives in wedding mode. So Jesus says, you're just like a bunch of disgruntled children. You find it easier to whine and all you can do is criticize. You reject John because he didn't have enough fun. You reject me because I have too much fun celebrating and eating with tax collectors and sinners. To which I quickly say, amen, because just as I am, they came, right? And God received them. He says, you're playing your childish games with God's message. Hear this, new hope. Playing games with God's message while people are teetering on the brink of destruction. That's why Jesus hits the brakes so hard and says, just stop. Don't you realize what you're doing with God's message? He's slamming them for willfully ignoring what is right in front of their eyes. So he says, wisdom, finishes it this way, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds because corrupted wisdom always results in corrupted deeds, like falsely accusing Jesus of having a demon and executing Jesus, like beheading John Corrupted wisdom results in corrupted deeds. Jesus says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, meaning it's proven, it's proven by the actions. Jesus is ultimately proven right by the results. Many, countless millions will respond to just as I am and will come into the kingdom of God. And I stand before hundreds today whom Jesus says, because you did that, you are greater even than John the Baptist. Like how great are you? To which we quickly recoil and say, how great is he? Well, you would be right in doing that. You would absolutely be right in doing that. So a couple things impressed me about John this morning. Maybe this is you. I'm impressed that John really wanted to know the truth and he wasn't afraid of trying to protect his reputation. So he willingly sends his disciples out with a question that he's been announcing things about all up until the time he's been locked up, saying, that's the one, that's the one, and now he says, are you really the one? See, there's no religious pretense there whatsoever. There's no hypocritical behavior. There's no self-deception. I just wanna know, are you really the one? I'm also impressed with this. John is called, mind you, the greatest in the kingdom on this planet who has ever walked up until the time of Jesus. But he says, you're even greater. The highest greatness that God offers is not like John's. He was unique, absolutely unique on this planet, but his greatness pales according to Jesus besides those who find the narrow gate and go through it and say I recognize I know what this is all about Jesus came died for my sins and I'm destined for heaven and we get there the big picture so true greatness is not in being like John but in being like Jesus amen amen let's pray Lord God, I thank you for every single soul in this auditorium, every single person who's watching online. That we have been given the privilege to hear your word. And as a result of your word, you say that you change things. I don't know how many people here view themselves, but God, I pray that we would see ourselves the way that you see us. We have been given great privilege and with great privilege, Father, we recognize comes great responsibility. I pray that we would carry this responsibility well this week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, God, whatever you have in store for us, remind us of the big picture. You, you alone are worthy, and you've made us worthy, and we thank you for that. In the magnificent name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.